Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 215 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is privacy and the family genetic inheritance. In 2012, a new story broke about genetic inheritance. It was the finding of the body of England's long-dead King Richard III and how genetic data was used to link him 500 years later to a Canadian citizen. So what other genetic inheritance things can genetic data be used for? Another genetic inheritance story concerns the Métis, who are one of the recognized Aboriginal peoples in Canada. They trace themselves to mixed First Nations and European heritage. A recent Canadian Supreme Court ruling found that the federal government had failed to fulfill a promise to the Métis people over 140 years ago. So, Could the federal government require genetic data to establish whether or not individuals are true Métis? And could this requirement eventually, if it were in force, eventually lead to genetic data becoming a normal part of our official identity system? Now, yet another genetic inheritance story concerns a small store in a small Canadian town. The store specializes in reduction of weight for overweight people. It advertises a service of personal genetic profiling. So what protections of the customer's genetic privacy are required? All of which is why our topic, privacy and the family genetic inheritance, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Man Zawati. Man is a lawyer, researcher and academic coordinator of the Centre of Genomics and Policy at McGill University. He's an associate member of the Biomedical Ethics Unit unit at McGill University. His research focuses on legal and ethical aspects of biobanking and duties of healthcare professionals. He's published widely in genomic databases, research findings in genomic research, legal liability of physicians, and closure of biobanks. He's presented widely on these topics and is a frequent guest lecturer at universities. He's a lecturer at the University of Montreal, having taught biological sciences, law, and civil liability courses. He's chief tutor of the SGS Ethical Issues in Genetics at McGill University's Faculty of Medicine. 
He sits on the board of directors of the Canadian Bioethics Society, representing Eastern Canada, that is Quebec, and is a legal representative on the Research Ethics Committee of the Montreal General Hospital. So welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Gordon, for having me. Now, first question for you. Please tell us more about your personal story and your career. Well, um, with pleasure. Uh, so, as you've mentioned, rightly mentioned, I'm a lawyer and uh, academic coordinator of the Center of Genomics and Policy. Um, well, obviously, in order to become a lawyer, I've had to um, do my studies in law. So I have a bachelor from the Université de Montréal in law, and I've decided as well to do a master's degree, um, uh, which was specialized this time on um, genetic counselors. So I've studied the um, legal liability of genetic counselors um, as well as um, the fact that they are not considered in Canada as being professionals. So any uh, pitfalls from them not becoming uh, professionals are not recognized as professionals and what that means for their liability and what that means for the liability of the other uh, professionals they're working with, such as um, physicians, geneticists mostly, and nurses. Man, please tell us more about your work, both as a researcher and a lawyer. With pleasure. Um, in the Center of Genomics and Policy, um, my research focuses on biobanking mostly. Um, with my law background, I'm able to um, work on uh, projects that require a legal input. Um, this is not a, a legal opinion that is given, but rather uh, a study um, and usually a comparative international study of the legal and ethical issues that arise in a specific field. So I work a lot on, in biobanking um, issues um, involve or include uh, um, access, for example, to databases and to biobanks. So there is um, a researcher or a research project that creates a biorepository or creates a biobank. They have both data as well as samples, and they want uh, researchers uh, both nationally and internationally to access them. So how do we do that? And how do we ensure that access is done, for example, uh, um, with respect and, and, and compliant with the privacy laws, um, uh, confidentiality of the pay of the participants? Um, so these are the kind of issues that, that I have to deal with every day. Just please explain what a biobank is. Yes, a biobank is a... Um, Usually, it's defined as a, an organized collection of data and samples. Um, there are a number of different types of biobanks. Um, the biobanks that I usually work uh, with or, 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 or sort of study the, the issues associated with them are population biobanks. So they have a population basis, and they usually uh, collect data uh, as well as samples for future unspecified research. Okay. Now, I want to know, please... Um, about the Center of Genomics and Policies research as it might relate or as it does relate to family genetic information. Absolutely. The, uh, we are affiliated uh, uh, with the Department of Human Genetics at uh, McGill University, um, and, and our center is at the crossroads of the legal, medical, and public policy fields. Um, 
The center promotes prospective structuring and guidance uh, for both research in genomic health sciences and its applications. And uh, throughout the years, we've um, uh, you know sort of perfected a, a, an expertise in, in multidisciplinary uh, work. So uh, within a multidisciplinary perspective, and, uh, and obviously in collaboration with national and international partners, um, our center analyzes the socio-ethical as well as the legal norms, influencing multiple aspects of the promotion. Uh, prevention as well as the protection of human health. When we're talking about protection and advancement of health and things like that, um, and the collection of huge amounts of data, there are all kinds of questions that are, can be quite sensitive. For example, who actually is collecting the data, where is it held, and how how well protected it is. And what I've got in mind here is there are huge stories about hacking into government databases and hacking into banks and hacking into all kinds of electronic systems. So what about the risks as you see them for these I'm going to call them data banks Mm -hmm. um, and for these collections of very sensitive data? What do you think? Well, um, obviously, we need to put this into context. So if we take the example of a biobank uh, that is created, uh, for example, in a hospital, so um, the data as well as the samples, um, let's first, for example, let's take a, a, the example of a population biobank. So um, these are usually uh, asymptomatic uh, participants from the public uh, that decide uh, purely from altruism to participate uh, in this research project, um, and, and they have in mind the, the you know the, the common good and the uh, and the health of future generations. So they go to a hospital. Uh, uh, usually, there's an assessment center, um, and they provide uh, data as well as samples. And could, they could be blood samples. It could be urine samples. Um, and the data could be uh, data uh, that they provide uh, um, through questionnaires or self-administered questionnaires. And both of these are stored for a number of years. And the goal here is to, um, uh, to allow these data as well as those samples to be accessed um, by uh, researchers um, in the future for a, a number of different uh, research projects. Now, in terms of security, in terms of, you know, uh, potential of hacking and so on, this is why we have two different kinds of access procedures. Um, and, and, and biobanks usually, and, and once the uh, data is stored, um, there are two different types of access by researchers, whether they're national or international. There is what we call the open access, and this usually means aggregate type of, of, of data, which uh, uh, will not um, allow, reasonably allow uh, uh, any form of re-identification. So they're accessible online and people can access them. And you have what we call controlled access databases. And um, these, this means that uh, in order for a researcher to access those data and samples, and in order to protect the, the privacy and uh, of, the, of the participants and the confidentiality of their data, it has to go through a system, uh, and this means through a certain vetting uh, and an approval body. Uh, the researcher usually sends in an uh, access application. Um, they tell the, uh, the biobank uh, administrators, we would like to access your data uh, as well as your samples um, to do this 
type of project. So um, there is a review that is done of this application. The biobank ensures that um, the uh, request uh, falls within the objectives of their biobank. So if their biobank is to um, further studies on uh, chronic diseases, for example, and the researcher wants to access it for another type of, of research project or or something that would not be considered as a research project, then there are grounds for refusal. But if it falls within the objectives of the research project, um, they will look at the uh, researcher's credentials, whether they have ethical um, review approval. Um, they will look at uh, their security um, and confidentiality uh, um, sort of procedures. How will they protect the data once it's sent to them? Um, and usually, uh, uh, once the application is um, considered as uh, successful, there will be an agreement that is signed between the biobank as well as the researcher and his or her host institution. And the reason why this is done is because we want to ensure that a set of terms and conditions will be respected, and that includes, for example, no re-identification of participants. Can I just uh, um, raise this question of identification? Given yes. that genetic information identif identifies people, yes. in some ways you really don't need their names. You just look at the genetic data and then you know who they are. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but what do you say to that? Well, uh, I think that it's twofold. So first of all, unfortunately today with, with the advances in, in, in technology and the potential breaches, um, confidentiality cannot be fully guaranteed. So researchers will do their best uh, uh, to, to protect the, the confidentiality, to make sure that um, uh, they have all the processes and, and equipment that, that would reasonably uh, and, and to the best of their uh, uh, you know, standard of care to, to protect the, the, the confidentiality of the, of the data and samples. Um, that, um, that being said, um, uh, the fact that someone has a sample, for example, or just simply has data, um, it's going to be hard for them to be able to identify the person or the individual without any other type of information that they would get from somewhere else. And um, in order to reduce um, these possibilities, uh, there is a number of um, steps that are taken uh, uh, by the biobank, and uh, especially through the consent form as well. Uh, um, the participants are usually informed of the potential risks of, of uh, redentification, what that actually means for them. And they also explain to them uh, what are the uh, safeguards that are put in place for this not to happen. But um, in any case, in order to re-identify someone, um, you cannot do this simply by looking at their DNA. Uh, you have to have some other form of information that you can link it to. Um, and this is what uh, the research project will try to limit as much as possible. Okay, very helpful. Now, I'm going to... Um, take the break because it's that time that's when we have to uh, pay the rent so to speak so let's do that now this is dr gordon Everly, and my guest is man zawati you're listening to family caregivers unite on the voice america variety and empowerment channels and cjmp 90.1 fm community radio for Powell river please stay with us we're coming back Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com We let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives. Technology. Instant delivery. 
We live in an on-demand world. What's happened to the compassion, the kindness, a better pace? Listen to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. We'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world. Our guests come from around the world and we'll discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order. Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. All the changes you make in your life are positive, whether you realize it or not. And you can continue to create even more change to improve your life by tuning in to Pure Talk Radio with host Bonnie Worth. Bonnie sees everything as a learning life experience, and it only gets better as you go. Embrace life with the passion and enthusiasm it was meant to be lived with. Learn and become inspired. Listen to Pure Talk Radio every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Man Zawati. Our topic is privacy and the family genetic inheritance. Genetic information has important and beneficial uses, such as warning us that we may have a genetic predisposition to serious illnesses including breast cancer Um, it leads to important things like medical treatment personalized for our personal genetics and research into ways of counteracting our dangerous genetic predispositions but it also has this genetic information the potential for being abused so man we we hear about cyber criminals who steal our identities to defraud or attack us so what protections do privacy and security laws offer against the theft of our genetic information and how effective do you think these protections are well, uh, um, I mean, in terms of legislation, there are usually uh, a number of different types of legislation, but there's generally the general privacy and as well as the personal information legislation. So just to give you an example from Quebec, 
um, the Quebec Charter, which is a almost a, like a quasi-constitutional uh, a law. It has uh, a, a lot of weight here in Quebec, and, and other laws have to harmonize themselves with it. Um, it creates safeguards, for example, on the reputation, on the right to privacy, on the right to confidentiality. Um, in Quebec, also, we have uh, the Code Civil du Québec, uh, which also reiterates these uh, personal rights contained in the Quebec Charter. And uh, um, and and really focuses specifically on uh, integrity, right to reputation, privacy, as well as the importance of consent. Um, in any case, uh, or for example, context. Let's take healthcare as a context. So, information that is provided by a patient to uh, or patients to their clinicians um, is considered confidential information. Um, there are also professional norms and professional ethics codes that need to be respected by the physicians. Um, these information cannot be divulged or disclosed unless uh, the patient consents uh, to it. So uh, sometimes people come in with their family members and uh, visit a physician. Um, and uh, well, you know, one of the things that the physician wants to ensure is that if it's okay, if that person comes in and listens to the conversation. And if the, um, the, the patient nods, there's a implicit consent uh, for them to divulge this type of information. But the other thing that is really interesting as well, and that we will certainly uh, um, uh, will certainly be the challenge for us in the future is when it comes to express provisions of the law. So confidentiality needs to be protected all the time, um, and information cannot be disclosed unless there is an express provision of the law. Um, taking other examples in genetics, uh, um, so someone goes in into a clinic and uh, brings their child with them, uh, um, and that child seems to be bruised and uh, and and has you know a, a number of uh, um, health issues. Well, the uh, some laws. Um, specifically uh, looking at youth protection, um, will not give the physician any leverage. They will have to um, disclose this information to the uh, youth protection agency. So uh, this is an express provision of the law. Um, we have yet to see something uh, clearly um, uh, focused on genetics per se, um, but, but we are certain that this will come up in the, in, in the future. Right. Now, still on the question of our disclosure of our genetic information, um, it could be disclosed to organizations that could use it to our disadvantage. And here I'm thinking about insurance companies, police, governments, and even healthcare organizations. So what protections do privacy and security laws offer against the disclosure of our genetic information without our understanding of its use and consent to its use? And how effective, uh, this is your opinion, how effective do you think these protections actually are? Well, I think you just mentioned a keyword here, again, which is consent. So it's really all based on consent. Um, if we take the example of research projects uh, or genetic research projects, most of the times you will see in the consent form um, uh, specific uh, information about the risks 
of such information, um, you know, being out there. So, so that insurance companies, if you mentioned governments, but there's also employers as well uh, that could fall into that. So, um, uh, these risks are, in, are 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 clearly divulged and should be clearly divulged to the participant before they participate in such type of research projects, so that they can uh, take an informed decision about to participate or not. Now, uh, perhaps one question you could be asking would be for well, for biobanks, for example, uh, um, if if uh, uh, biobanks hold uh, data as well as samples and that there are uh, a number of uh, uh, genetic tests done on those uh, samples and, 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 and that the biobank contains genetic data, well, can insurers, for example, uh, access uh, that information? Well, once again, that's why a lot of biobanks actually do not allow insurers to access those data banks um, and employers as well. Uh, they limit it to um, uh, researchers conducting research on a specific field. So there are uh, um, a, a number of protections that are um, sort of placed or, 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 or clearly mentioned in the laws, but there's also the protection that come through practice. And um, how are these effective or not? I think it's a case-by-case -case, um, issue. I think the laws are there, um, but there definitely needs uh, to be uh, potential improvement um, uh, in the long run. Uh, but for now, I think if, if we look at uh, the different provisions and if we look at the practice, uh, this issue has already come, came, come to the fore and, and people are aware of it. Just to extend that particular point, insurance companies, um, police, governments, uh, employers, um, but what about drug companies, what about the pharmaceutical companies? Would they have any kind of access to my genetic information, for example? Well, it, it, depending on, on the, the form of the genetic information. So um, usually biobanks, if we take that again as an example, uh, the uh, data um, uh, that is provided to researchers, and they can come from, from pharmaceutical companies, um, if when it's provided uh, to, to uh, uh, these researchers, it's usually provided in what we call a coded form. So it's a form that uh, uh, will not, does not include any direct or indirect identifiers. Okay. Now, let's go on to another, another difficult question. And that's the same thing, in a way. Our genetic information could be disclosed to organizations that could use it to discriminate us discriminate against us on grounds of race or parentage mm -hmm. that ha as we all know that has happened in the past um, so it raises the question of what protection do privacy and security laws offer against discrimination based on our genetic information and how effective do you think these protections are um, in this particular case, which is very interesting, and there's, there's a current debate in, in Canada about whether or not to add genetic discrimination um, in, in our charters or in our, in our Human Rights Act and so on, and there's actually a bill, uh, um, uh, a bill that, that is now presented on, on that matter, and, and there have been a number of what we call private bills that were proposed um, uh, to, to that effect. Um, but again, when we talk about discrimination, usually in terms of protection, we come back to the Charter uh, uh, of Rights and Freedoms of Canada. Um, in Article 15, for example, which is the article that um, you know discusses you know the potential discrimination and equality, well, 
race is, is mentioned in it. Uh, um, so, so, you know, in terms of interpretation, uh, our protection uh, is, is given from, from actually a supreme law, from a constitutional law, uh, and this binds, uh, obviously, governments. And um, when they enact laws, when they, um, when they have programs, um, and the same could be said also of uh, similar laws that are provincially uh, based, like, for example, the Quebec Charter. Um, so there are there a number of um, protection and, and either quasi constitutional if it's if it's from Quebec for example or constitutional uh, when it's in the uh, Canadian uh, Charter of uh, Rights and Freedoms. Right now, I just want to summarize back to you what I'm hearing just to make sure that I've understood it and so that we can um, be clear on leaving these points. What I'm hearing you see, say overall is that, yes, there are protections in the various laws up to including the charter and those kinds of things. But the impression I'm having from you is that um, there's more work to be done as knowledge advances and as use of this genetic information advances that I get the impression from you, you think there's room for some kind of improvement in certain contexts at least. Am I right in what I've said to you? Yes, and that's, that's, uh, that's right. Um, you know, I think the issue is, is an issue of um, um, education. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's not only professionally uh, oriented, but also for the public as well. Um, so the laws are there and they, they do uh, provide protection um, in, in many instances, but um, how about the people who actually practice um, and, and have to abide by these laws? Um, you know, when we talk about a researcher and a, and a research project where we talk about the physician or the geneticist in uh, the clinic, um, how much do they know, how much do they have in, you know, in terms of information? One of the other things is, I mean, the, the issue of genetics is, it's not necessarily new, but but its implications, uh, especially ethical and legal implication, are um, you know are a couple of decades old. Um, so we're still learning a lot about um, its uses and its implications. Uh, one thing that we are seeing today, for example, um, is what we call direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Uh, so people can go online um, and you know sort of send their 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 sample or usually saliva. Uh, there is some genetic testing that is done overseas, and then they have access to a number of, um, you know, sort of types of diseases, and they tell them their percentage and, and what's the average of the population and so on. But um, these practices, for example, uh, once the individual receives those information, where would they go? They usually go and see their general practitioner. Um, and the general practitioner is not necessarily versed in genetics, so... Uh, and its implications as well. I mean, obviously, they will follow through confidential uh, or confidentiality practices, but there are perhaps sometimes added protection that needs to be done, and therefore, education is a very important tool here. Very good. Now, it's time to take the break, so let, let's do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my, my guest is Man Zawati. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com 
What if you were willing to be controversial, choosing kindness instead of judgment, willing to stand out from the crowd, being a leader in creating a new reality, even if others don't follow? You can make a difference. Start by tuning in to The Value of Controversy. Each week, our hosts will bring you the tools to help create the world that you want to live in and explore what's possible when you choose from the controversy of consciousness. Listen for The Value of Controversy every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. What does success mean to you? Is it being just like the person on the other side of the fence where the grass is supposedly greener? We harbor too many feelings of envy and suppressed anger targeted at others, and it's holding us back from our success. Tune in to Wealthy Thoughts with Richard Levy. Just by listening, you'll be empowered to make positive lifestyle changes to live the successful life that you deserve to live. Wealthy Thoughts can be heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. The challenges facing our teens today mean that more than ever, we need to be there to support them and encourage them. The Dr. Stem Show is here to provide discussions about topics that will help promote healthy relationships, self-image, and success for teens, parents, and the community. Our young people can achieve more in life than they ever dreamed possible. The Dr. Stem Show, hosted by Dr. Stem Malatini, will foster these discussions and encourage your participation. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, and 9 p.m. GMT on Voice America Empowerment. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Man Zawati. Our topic is privacy and the family genetic inheritance. Now, we've discussed that Genetic information has the potential for being abused. Now, let's discuss the ways in which the principles that underpin privacy and security laws could be improved so our genetic information and that of our families can be better protected. So really, man, what I'm asking you to do is to look somewhat to the future in a way and say, how can we be sure that we're doing a good enough job for the protection of something that's really very important to protect. So, Man, first question. What are the key principles that actually underpin existing privacy and security laws that are intended to protect us and the families against risks over which we have little or no way of protecting ourselves? Um, There are a number of key principles here, Gordon. I mean, um, you know, we can talk about autonomy, for example, when it comes to the issue of consent. Um, you know, patients and participants are, are provided with um, the, um, you know, the different options and they do provide informed uh, choices. 
Um, there's obviously the right to privacy. Uh, that is a key principle here. Um, I mean, also, I, I, I cannot overemphasize the importance of um, uh, of, of consent here. Uh, consent is very, very important. And, and I'll give you another example of really Canadian perspective. Um, when it comes to genetic research projects, um, we have a document here, which is a national ethics document uh, called the, uh, the Tri-Council Policy Statement. And the Tri-Council Policy Statement says clearly um, that whenever we intend to, for example, return findings of genetic nature to participants, at the consent um, stage, we um, should strive to um, receive uh, the preferences of the participants when it comes to uh, providing such information as well or sharing that information with their family members. Uh, so it all comes back to the uh, consent uh, phase. This is where individuals are, especially from a research perspective, this is where individuals know what, what are the risks they know what are the security safeguards, and, and they are able uh, to make informed choices uh, given their, their readiness to, to, to tackle those risks. Now, leading question, this one. What do you see as the most worrying shortcomings of the principles you've identified? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't use the, necessarily the word worrying. I think there's, um, uh, it's, it's a question perhaps of improvement, and I think it, it falls not necessarily on those uh, principles per se, but perhaps on their application. Um, and this brings us back to the idea of uh, professional conduct. Um, uh, you know, there are norms out there that explain and that provide uh, professionals with, you know, how, you know, how uh, they, they should protect uh, um, you know, information or personal information that could include genetic information um, and, uh, you know, the exceptions to, to such protection. Uh, obviously, the the duty to confidentiality is not absolute, and there are limits to that. Um, so, I, I think it's in terms of the the, the application. So, uh, how do we apply those principles in practice? Um, and and I, I think there is there are grounds, uh, obviously, as always, uh, for improvement. Now, I'm just going to follow up on the application in practice. That is, in particular situations, uh, the details where as they say, the devil is. Um, I hear a lot on Family Caregivers Unite from family caregivers with family members with severe mental illnesses. And I'm thinking here, for example, of schizophrenia, yeah. where um, the family uh, is, and the family caregiver is usually, are usually the first people to recognize that the person may be going off into what's called a psychotic episode, yeah. which, according to the degree and the type of schizophrenia, can be very serious. It can lead to violence, suicide, and even um, violence of a lethal kind against other people because of the voices that the individual is hearing. Yeah. Now, the problem that family caregivers run into is that unless they have power of attorney or substitute decision-making, whatever the things are, um, they try to connect, they see something happening, they try to connect with physicians or the mental health services, and they get told, no, sorry, we won't talk to you because we don't have the patient's permission. Well, how do you respond in a general way to that kind of dilemma? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I guess this is a very uh, a specific type of dilemma and, and um, an unfortunate one. Um, obviously, again, the the goal here is to, to, to provide, you know, or ensure confidentiality uh, and make sure that people who uh, are uh, presumed as being competent um, and as adults um, uh, represent themselves. Um, and obviously, there are a number of, of different um, you know, types of representation that could be done. A legal representative can be, um, you know, a legal representation can be created, for example, for for an individual who um, does not have all their his capacity or her capacity. That it can include, for example, a, a, a curatorship or a tutorship. Um, my suggestion in these um, instances is is that the um, family caregiver um, goes and asks for a legal opinion. And it's a very, uh, it's a case-by-case situation. Um, um, obviously, the, the, the issue is not only when it comes to um, them representing them, but also it comes when once they are taking, uh, or taken into the hospital, um, you know, the decisions that are made in the hospital and who actually consents for them uh, becomes important. And, and obviously, if the care um, a giver is also the representative of that individual, well, they will be allowed to also take the decision. So it's not only an issue of getting them in the hospital, but it's also an issue of, uh, you know, helping them make the right decisions when they're in the hospital. Um, but, but there are obviously a number of um, issues to consider, and I think it's a case-by-case situation that we require specific uh, uh, legal advice. Good. Now, let's stay with the kind of improvements um, that you see as being necessary uh, or changes or additions, perhaps to deal with these rather specific situations. So what are the changes or additions that you suggest for improving the principles? Well, again, if we if we look at it through uh, the applications, um, one way of, of a, you know being able to do that is to improve and uh, and and have more training and education in the primary care setting. Um, you know, geneticists and genetic counselors uh, and genetic departments usually um, have a very good idea of what are the issues and 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 uh, you know what the, that information implies. Uh, most of the uh, you know primary care physicians also, if they look at it through the lens of personal information, they also do. But um, there are specific in, uh, um, intricacies and specific issues that arise from certain type of genetic information that would require perhaps. Um, more education and and more training at the primary care level because this is where everyone uh, initially goes. Um, an individual who, um, you know, for example, receives their results from a direct-to-consumer genetic testing uh, website uh, won't necessarily be able to go directly to a geneticist. They will first go to the primary care physician who uh, will probably have to make a decision uh, whether to help them interpret this, refer them, um, you know, and, and while doing that, uh, you know, the information that is provided, you know, what exactly should we do with it um, and how would it be transferred and, you know, interpreted and so on. So I think uh, mainly it is an issue of education. Um, it could be done at the clinical setting and it could also be done at, um, you know, at the, at the professional setting as well. Professional bodies um, um, have in their mandate, um, uh, you know, the, the continuing education of their of their of their members so this is also a place where that could be done now talking about education which yeah. i think is i think if i may say so i 
agree with you very strongly indeed in what you've just said, but I'd like to extend it. As you know, in, in clinical work, doctors and nurses work to things called clinical practice guidelines. Mm-hmm. These are compiled by people who really have researched and know the subject and have put together what comes out from knowledge, a careful consideration of mm-hmm. current knowledge of what the best type of approach is to a particular problem. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very useful and they're well respected. What would you think of the idea of a family caregiver guideline that is the same th- idea but presented to family caregivers who are in the kind of situations we've been talking about that would aim to give them a sense of what the best way under certain circumstances is to go, um, how, what to expect, and also how to conduct a conversation with your family doctor. What do you think about the idea of a family caregiver guideline? It's actually a very interesting approach um, uh, that could be helpful. My suggestion would be yes. I think it it uh, it, it should be done, and it uh, it obviously has its benefits. But I think in order to develop it, um, you would require a number of stakeholders sitting on the same table. So you would require representatives of uh, family care uh, givers. You would require representatives from the uh, legal uh, field, from the ethical field, from clinicians, from researchers, all sitting down together and discussing, um, you know, exactly what would that entail. I think it's, uh, it's important to be, in order for to, to have such a document that uh, all the voices be heard. And also, what you've just said is important to ensure that the document is trusted. That mm-hmm. is, that people are seeing it as something that they can rely on mm-hmm. and also so that they can understand it and it isn't the kind of things that researchers, particularly medical researchers, mm-hmm. like to write, which yeah. nobody else understands. Yeah. So thank you for that. And um, I, may, <laughs> I may get back to you at a later date about that, that yeah. idea. But right now, it's the time once again to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Man Zawati. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com When you think of inspiring women, who comes to mind? Is it a visionary like Oprah Winfrey? Political or legal figures like Hillary Clinton or Sonia Sotomayor? Or how about entrepreneurial business leaders like Meg Whitman? No matter whom you might be thinking of, make sure to add one more to that list. Deanne DeMarco. She's the host of Today's Inspiring Women. Each week, Deanne turns you on to the next rising star in business and leadership and what their successes and challenges have been. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Do you ever feel stuck on a hamster wheel? Constantly running but getting nowhere? Ready to try something different? The secret is actually quite simple. When you fall in love with yourself, everything else falls into place, personally and professionally. Each week, you can find out how to choose your energy and change your life with your host, Deborah Jane Wells. It's time to get unstuck, reclaim your personal power, and recapture your zest for living. Tune in to Choose Your Energy, Change Your Life, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 
Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Man Zawati. Our topic is privacy and the family genetic inheritance. So let's talk, Man, about more things that you want to do and see done to enable privacy and security laws to be more effective in protecting us against abuse of our and our family's genetic information. So first off, Man, what more do you want to see to do and see done by governments? Well, um, obviously more knowledge transfer. Um, I think it's really important for governments and for ministries who are, uh, uh, you know, sort of deeply interested by those issues to perhaps provide to the public uh, a set of, you know, frequently asked questions, um, a set of of helplines, a set of um, uh, places where they can go, websites that they can visit, um, where where individuals, whether they are uh, professionals, whether they are uh, researchers um, doing research, um, whether they are jurists, uh, ethicists, um, or simply um, uh, you know people from the public uh, as well as caregivers. They can go to and to find the information that they need that would be, in a way, personalized to them, um, with the proper referrals, with the proper, um, you know, uh, level of information issues. I think this is something that 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 is needed and and that has already started in a number of um, um, you know governmental institutions. I would just like to comment back to you and say again, I agree with you very strongly about that because. Things are moving ahead in this field very rapidly, and you've made that clear, and you're absolutely right. On the other hand, I read a lot of newspapers because I'm now a journalist, and I really don't see a lot of discussion about the kind of things that we've also been talking about, the kind of information that people need, where it's all going. There's a certain amount of information, obviously, on the... um, improvements to healthcare that are going to happen but there isn't the information about the other things at least not to the extent i would like to see anyway that you've talked about and that are needed when we take account of the downside of some of these things that are otherwise so beneficial so do you agree with me on that by the way 
Well, I, I, yes, I, I do agree because, unfortunately, most of what is written or uh, or, or what what perhaps uh, captures our attention is and it's the negative. So, so you know, we sometimes uh, um, read and, and then we we fall on, on on a on a journal or on a piece that discusses uh, the fallouts or breaches and so on, and that unfortunately uh, stays with individuals as in okay. Uh, th- that could be problematic. We should be careful, and so on. But I think, in a, and I would encourage also, um, uh, you know, journalists and again, uh, centers and professional bodies to um, talk about success stories as well. Right. And this is also very important. Agreed. Uh, yep. Yeah. And, and and I think this will also allow people to have a balanced view, um, a better understanding, a more informed one, uh, and will also push their um, curiosity. Right. Now, question, what more do you want to see done to improve the help provided to individuals and their families so that they can understand and speak about their fears of abuse of their genetic information? You've already partly answered that question, but I'd particularly like you to address the question of people being able to speak about their fears of abuse and that kind of thing. What do you think? Um in, in 2005, there was a, um, a, a very important article that was written in Nature, which talked about um, emerging ethical trends, um, and, and one of those trends is citizenry and, and the importance of public engagement. Um, so, and, and obviously, this would include uh, family caregivers so, and, and families uh, at large. So um, it is really important for, and, and again, I, I look at it from a, a research perspective, um, in certain areas and under certain issues, uh, it's very important to um, get the pulse of the population and, and, and listen to their fears and listen to their, um, um, you know, their concerns, uh, because this allows us to better um, uh, adopt and develop policies and actually model them in a way that um, would be accepted. Uh, and, you know, in, in a way, it's, our, it's, our, um, it's a normal thing to do when people participate in research altruistically uh, without any direct benefit. Um, so citizen engagement, um, citizen forums, public engagement uh, uh, initiatives are very welcome in that end. And it's a way, isn't it, of building trust Something new is coming. It's got enormous potential for benefit, but it also carries risk. And I, while I accept your point that we mustn't scare everybody, at the same time, I have studied the history of the use in healthcare of ionizing radiation, you know, for x-rays and now CT scans and the like. And there's no question that ionizing radiation can be extraordinarily dangerous. Many of the early scientists, researchers, died themselves because of their exposure to radiation. But we learned the lessons, and now it's extraordinarily safe, if I can use that word, in Canada. And people trust it. Um, People trust it. So what you were saying about addressing people's fears isn't is important in many ways, not least for creating the trust that people will have in important technologies. Yes, if, now, carry on. You know, and actually, I just wanted to add to that. I mean, if, if science would have an emotion, it would be trust. I mean, this is, this is really the core of everything, uh, whether you're in a clinical setting or in your research setting. 
build the genetics. It's all about trust. And, um, you know, citizen engagement is very important, but the way we do it is also very important as well. Um, you know, we must, uh, um, you know, the, provide the information in a very accessible way so that people can actually engage with it and provide this with their, uh, um, you know, their concerns and their feedback on it. We can't just be presenting this from a you know, high level, very complex uh, uh, fashion. So the way we also do that um, also will, will foster and, and increase the trust. Right. Now, final Quick, quick question. What's your message to families and family caregivers who are concerned about the use or abuse of their genetic information? Um, my message to them is, is other than, than to, to tune in on your, on your, on your great show, um, is, to, um, is, to, is to actually get informed. Um, there are a number of stakeholders out there that have the information, and I really encourage them to um, go um, on, on um, you know, public um, uh, websites, uh, whether it's from ministries of health, um, to go to the various, um, uh, you know, patient representative organizations, um, talk within their institutions, um, and, and try to find ways to get the information. Obviously, not, you know, not everything that is online is actually accurate, but there are trusted sources. And I think this is uh, uh, my suggestion to them is to, um, you know, uh, yes, we, we do hear a lot about, uh, about horror stories and, and about uh, unfortunate events, but there are a lot of success stories. And in order for us to be able to, to see them and to um, learn from, from these experiences, we have to go and try to find them. So uh, there are a number of sources that um, the family caregivers and, and families at large can go to um, and, and again, that, that also builds the trust that we need. Excellent. Now, on that point, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time for this um, episode. I want to say, man, thank you very much. Uh, very, very helpful and instructive. And I want to, on behalf of all of us, wish you continued success in your research, your teaching, and your exploration of all these tough issues, because they are tough, so that we advance to the point that we all trust what's happening, and that would be a strong measure of the success of work of people like you. And I wish you every success in, in achieving it. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll talk about combining conventional and complementary medicine. Please join us, same time, same spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.